hello and welcome to wes and conversations about the films of wes anderson a proud member of the smug buds family of podcasts this is episode four i am calling episode four the wife apodic <laughs> what was the second word you said apodic what's apodic as in podcast oh there we go there we go or pod wife yes yes the wife a podic <laughs> oh will uh i am the titular pod wife will and i am joined as always by my pod husband liz hi liz hi will welcome everyone to our first four hour long episode mm. yep no, we're not actually going to do that. Also, how can well, we know that it would be that long? We just started recording. We'll see. I mean, you take notes prior to recording. I Because I not. know I'm going to forget things if I right. don't. And I forget things and I just, you know, say la vie. Mm -hmm. uh, you, but you know how long your notes are relative to other, you know, episodes that you've prepared for in that way. Yeah. And I tried to speed through my introduction just to give you more time. I'm going to take a backseat which I'm more than happy to do after last week. Um, before that, I think we do have some old business. Old business. Did you see about Joe Para? Oh, his book. He has a book coming out. Yes. Uh, I'll, read, I'll read you from his Instagram. A bathroom Please. book for people. Not pooping or peeing, but using the bathroom as an escape. Yes. And then the cover has a toilet at the uh actually it's not at the end of the pier it's at the middle of a pier and there's a seabird of some sort and then it's uh, a lake with some mountains and trees in the distance yes it's a very funny premise for a book uh, i will look forward to consuming anything that joe creates in any medium it did strike me as like an artifact of a bygone era like it, it <laughs> reminded me of like how long ago do you remember go go the fuck to sleep yes how long that must have been at least a decade ago i was gonna say 15 years ago i i feel like that that is the that was like the premiere time for like the book has a funny concept it's like a twist <laughs> on a book <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's uh, uh, ambitious and creative and like like everything that Joe does, kind of a throwback. Yeah, a little old timey. To, to make a to make a funny bathroom book in in twenty twenty one. Do you have books in your bathroom? Do you mind no. me asking that? We have no. national we have National Geographic's, which we were just talking about last week. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, no, I, I I never I don't recall ever having reading material in that space oh that and mad magazine classic which very small story do you know about why we get mad magazine no so kenny got mad magazine in high school and into college and mm -hmm. then accidentally his mom bought two sub year subscriptions like she had mm -hmm. bought one got a notice for buying another one thought oh i haven't done this yet but she had mm -hmm. renewed again this is when it was coming out monthly mm -hmm. it then switched to coming out quarterly mm -hmm. so kenny's subscription went from being done in like 2012 mm -hmm. to being done in 
2021. Sure. Right. Because of the number of issues that were paid for. I see. Yes, because we paid by the issue, not by mm-hmm. the year number. Scheduled, of, yes, the yeah. calendar, the distribution. So yeah, we're still so even when Mad Mag so at one point it was we thought Mad Magazine was gonna be totally cancelled or finished or whatever, and now they're just releasing it with mostly regurgitated material and then some new material. Mm-hmm. Um but there was a time when Kenny was like, I goddamn paid for <laughs> issues through twenty twenty one that's funny okay do you have any old business i certainly don't okay so what was i know that you said that you this is probably your least watched that you had already seen wes anderson i may have said that i would say more precisely it was my least remembered okay that's fair i i i'm sure that on at least two occasions prior to this week I sat down and watched this movie and it just kind of had a way of sort of going in one ear and out the other. Yeah. And you're not um, alone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this movie, I think, cost $50 million to make. And I think after DVD sales and the it made 34 million. That's um, thir- 34, I think, is the worldwide gross. Yeah. And the U.S. gross was some somewhere in the 20 millions. And at the time, people, too, um, didn't love it as much as they loved Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore. I was seeing on the Wikipedia that when people have revisited this movie, they've been like, oh, this movie's a lot better than we remembered. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like critics who had written about it at the time have since sort of said, Maybe we weren't really looking at this the right way at the time. And that's and that's a statement about how it ages. And it's a statement about hindsight. And it's also, importantly, a statement about context. Mm-hmm. And the con- seeing it in the con- a context like today versus the context of when it came out in 2004. Yeah. This is this is all this is all this is the foremost thing that I want to talk about. But yeah. this is so your movie that I feel like I have to hold back and just let you run wild. And then if there's time, I can talk about what I want to talk about. Normally I would interject here yeah. and talk about the budget and why I'm interested in the budget. And the fact that it came out on Christmas Day, 2004. Oh, God, I just, didn't know that. And and the fact that this is the Wes Anderson movie with the highest budget and the fact that if we were, in fact, Griffin and David doing their podcast blank check instead of just two people ripping them off, <laughs> this this would be the reason why they might cover Wes Anderson on the blank check podcast yeah. because this is this is the blank check in his filmography this mm-hmm. is the it's it's weird how much money he would he they gave him uh and uh it was a, a as in their terms a crazy passion project yes I, I won't go into any more detail about that until i feel like you've had your uh fair share of the spotlight go ahead I also want to say that um, I know <laughs> I know Wes Anderson has said um, that movie was ne- too expensive and I never should have made it. 
he's sort of a self-deprecating guy. You know, he he seems to have a good sense of humor, at least publicly, mm-hmm. about these sorts of things. So so he can he can make colorful remarks about how you know it was a bad idea or or uh, it wasn't a success. Um. So. I know that I keep talking about how this is my... So this is my second favorite movie of all time. Right. Do you remember what my first favorite movie is, just for the listeners? I'm I'm sure... I, I'm pretty confident it must be Amelie. It's Amelie, yeah. Right. So I think that those two together also give a good sense of who I am as a person. Yes. Um, could you describe what I look like right now? <laughs> so you are wearing a knit red beanie style hat. Mm-hmm. specifically with the little sort of traffic light symbol, which I think is only on Owen Wilson's version I think so, yeah. of the hat. And you're wearing a blue button-down short sleeve shirt with, uh, are those called epaulets I on the shoulders? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. And a sort of Team Zisu patch, it appears to be, yeah. uh, over a breast pocket. Uh-huh. And that's that's as much of your fit as I can see in the Skype window. So I just have these clothes and I just wear them sometimes. This is my winter mm-hmm. hat. This is the sure. hat I wear all winter. I wear it in the house. And that, yeah, and, and that would look pretty much normal to anyone's yes. eyes, w- whether they know this movie or not. Um, I had a Life Aquatic themed baby shower <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where, which was perfect um so kenny wore the shirt that i'm wearing now in the hat though it's my shirt and hat let's be very clear um Mm -hmm. i just could not wear it because i was pregnant and i wore a i think i was wearing a black tank top underneath a green like an army green button down sort of khaki button down shirt Mm -hmm. which i did not button the whole way so my tummy was sticking out Mm -hmm. much like kate blanchett there's a pregnant woman in this movie so it's 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 fitting that that would be a theme for a baby shower. It is. It's not only one of your favorite movies. Yes. It's also a which movie is why with we, a pregnant woman in it. Yeah, which is why we picked this instead of like yes. Amelie. Right. Also, Elliot's Very good. bedroom is underwater sea creature themed. Mm-hmm. I feel it's important to note underwater sea creature themed instead of just like sea themed. Because sea mm-hmm. themed can be a lot of like shells and like driftwood and like boats. Not to nitpick, but surely you could just say sea creature, though, right? Like, Pro- possibly, yeah, yeah. Are there any above water sea creatures to distinguish uh, from underwater? Maybe sea like creatures? a maybe like a seagull might be mm. considered a sea creature. It's, it's got from, sea in the name, and it is a creature. Yeah, pelicans. You got me there. Um, but I take your point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was specifically trying to really emphasize that I wasn't just thinking of fish. Mm -hmm. sure um so like he's got a jellyfish decal on one wall until we got his new bed he had a like an octopus sort of coming out from behind his crib and Mm -hmm. then above his changing table and this was my present from kenny on my birthday the year i gave birth is a drawing a an illustration let's say that somebody Mm -hmm. did of the cut across of the belafonte the cross section of That's the, the Belafonte, yes. <laughs> Cut across is not the word. Mm-hmm. So I love this movie. This is how I came to this movie, and this is how I came to Wes Anderson. Yes. Um, when I was, it, when it was April of 2006, um, 
I had a very specific routine. I would end my day of high school. My friend uh, Cagno would drive home to my house. Mm-hmm. Uh, me, uh, my brother, um, Kelsey Cagno, his sister, my friend Jeremy Patterson, uh, and sometimes my friend Chad. And we would drink sodas, and Cagno would eat my uh, mother's Hot Pockets that she had purchased for Blake. <laughs> and we would lie on my – we all hung out in my mom's bedroom just because that's where, like, the TV and the computer was, which is a weird thing that is not weird to me, but I know it sounds mm-hmm. weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, we would all lay sort of, like, um, like on her bed facing – so, like, her bed was against – the headboard was against – a wall and then the tv was perpendicular so we would lay sort of like mm-hmm. next to each other on the bed and watch the tv with like our hands on our elbows somebody would get on the computer and get on my space we'd watch videos or whatever and then eventually cagno would take jeremy home who lived close to him and then um kelsey lived with him and in april uh the life aquatic was on demand on, like on verizon on demand mm-hmm. um vod they call that yes well that's a joke I- Okay, yeah. I said that that joke because I knew you'd want to correct me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Talk about falling into a trap. Yeah. Um, You got me. And we watched that goddamn movie pretty much every day for a month. And then I continued to watch it. Um, And then eventually it went off demand and I bought it. Right. To, to be clear, yes, on demand in the sense that you could just hit a button and play it. It didn't cost you anything yes. additional. Yes, uh, and, which and, is also, uh, by the way, how I saw Amelie for the first time. Pretty cool. So and you said this was April 2006, so you would have been mm-hmm. 17 at the time. Yep. You mm-hmm. would have been a senior? Mm-mm. Junior, a junior in high mm-hmm. school, right. Yeah, so my birthday set up. As such that I was always the oldest in my, I turned the year, right. I turned the age I was going to be pretty much right when the school year started. Right. And, and um, this is a, a 2004 movie, which as I said, came out Christmas day. Mm-hmm. So this was just a little over a year after it was in theaters. Yes. So I never would have. And, and also it's one of those things where I think we've talked about time. I know we've talked about time compression before, but right. like to think about 2000 Christmas of 2004, it was a complete, I was a completely different person then. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and now you, so it was not that far afterwards if you're looking at a calendar, but for me it mm-hmm. was, uh, the, that movie had been out for a long time. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was old news, but new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I mean, I think it's also worth mentioning, um, that Jeremy, who I love very much, he's one of my very dear friends. He was one of the bridesmen in my wedding. So you've technically met him. <laughs> sure. I was there. He and I had a really tumultuous relationship. Um, so that year specifically, uh, he ha- we had dated earlier in the year and he had um, uh, cheated on me with a French horn player. So he and I were still having a fairly tumultuous experience here where we were sometimes making out and sometimes not. It was always a secret, though. And this was like a thing that like we just were able to like not fight about. Once I walked up to him in the hallway before class started and I said, Jeremy, your cat died. I'm sorry. (laughs) And he said, what? What? Why'd you have to? Which one? I was like. Mar- marmalade 
he was like, how to die? I was like, a rattlesnake bit it in the throat. And he goes, Jesus, Willis, why do you have to say it? And I just walked away. He told me that he had multiple people that day be like, dude, I heard your cat died. Mm-hmm. That's all dialogue from the movie. Yes. <laughs> people in high school don't know that. No. This was not a popular film. But also, I mean, I think the fact that people couldn't tell that we were joking was um, fun for me at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I love this movie. If we're looking at... So, let me bring up my notes here. If we're looking at um, Wes Anderson, I feel like in terms of all of the tropes we've discussed that finally sort of settled into place in the Royal Tenenbaums, mm-hmm. they are hyper in this movie cranked up to 11 yes so like color light blue yellow bright red Mm -hmm. all over the place like even i mean this shows up a bunch of different times but like um when um for example um steve shows up at hennessy's uh what does he call it his island to try to butter up uh eleanor Mm mm-hmm he shows up in a yellow Jeep, right? Yeah. So these colors are are really saturated throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the cast is extensive and everybody has their own purpose. So did you watch those um, intern videos I sent? Yes. With the subject line, essential viewing? That's the reason I watched them, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you like those, by the way? They're I cute. I thought they were funny. Yeah. They're cute. I just, um, I, I have to say it, it is somewhat overshadowed by a different documentary about the making of this film that I found on YouTube that I think actually is more essential viewing. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is called This is an Adventure. Have you seen that? Um, I'm not sure I have in, I think it sounds like I've seen parts of it, but I'm not sure I've seen the whole thing. It's it sounds really, like that's something that I would have seen, but I couldn't, like, reference it. I've watched a lot of videos about this. It's really bare bones, no talking head interviews, no narration, just strung together footage from behind the scenes of mm-hmm. the making of this movie. It's it's almost a cinema verite, uh, okay. you know, very little uh, artifice. And there are a few moments in it that made me go like, huh, this is a really interesting window into what they were thinking when they made this movie that kind of uh, confirmed some of my suspicions about it. Oh, but, okay. But maybe that's just my own bias talking. And that's, yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. My, my reading of what I saw. So on the cast, we get some... Uh, old faves, uh, some new big names, mm-hmm. and some smaller people who do other things that are there. It there it reminded me of um, how you were saying that um, in uh, Bottle Rocket, some of the people were just like the town folk. Mm-hmm. And we'll, so we'll get to that. So I'm just going to run through the sort of main people. Let, let me just say real yes. quick. I think that like as in as like an armchair film nerd. Uh Like the easiest thing to recognize is like who's in each movie, right? Mm -hmm. Not who's behind the camera doing whatever. Yeah. And so it's one of the most fun 
aspects of sort of tra- of recognizing a Wes Anderson movie as a Wes Anderson movie and following his career is to see who comes back over and over. Yes. And who gets added to the roster mm-hmm. and who like the one-offs are. Yes. And that begins mostly with Royal Tenenbaums because Royal Tenenbaums mm-hmm. is the first real ensemble. And now from here off, you know, we're, we're out of the gates running. And so every time there's that sort of level of observation that you can make about the cast. And, and as we talked about in the last episode too, two of, one of the the character that is maybe most iconic from Royal Tenenbaums is Margot Tenenbaum, mm-hmm. and Kate, and Gwyneth Paltrow never shows up again. Right. Um. Uh. What's his name? Uh, who, Gene Hackman. Who never shows up again? That's. What is his name? I want to call him the name of my director from my George Mason MFA program. Are, are you thinking Ben someone... Stiller? Okay. Yeah. I wanted to say Bill Miller. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's close. That's real close. <laughs> um, he never shows up again. Right. So I'm just going to I'm going to go through the cast. Not every single person, but yeah, um, Bill Murray, Steve Zissou. Perfect. Mm-hmm. This is something that Wes Anderson had said he had been talking with Bill about, like, basically since he started working with him, that he wanted to do this oceanographer movie and he wanted Bill to be the lead. Right. So this is the first uh, movie that only has one of the Wilson brothers. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And it's Owen. Yep. And he plays uh, Edward Ned Plimpton and or Kingsley Zisu if uh, Bill Murray had had, if uh, Steve Zisu had had his, his way of his say in it. I think the, I think the uh, correspondence cards say Kingsley <laughs> Ned Zisu. They yeah. do. No and my, Plimpton at all. My computer, um, my computer's name freshman year of college was Kingsley. Very good. Um, he also, I know we've talked about Owen Wilson's voice before. He also has this like Kentucky accent in this movie. The the character is supposed to be from Kentucky. (laughs) Which is funny to think about because we were talking about his Texas accent was like not exactly what we think of as like a Southern accent. I mean, that's another one of the things that I want to talk about, but we, we won't go far down this road now, but I think that this movie is indicative of perhaps Owen Wilson is not much of a character actor. And I think that that, and I think that that's one of the weaknesses of this movie. I think that basically he can be Owen Wilson and, um, and, and an Owen Wilson movie can be successful as long as it is using, you know, him and his persona as we know it. Uh, rather than writing a character that has little to do with that. I I particularly like Owen Wilson in this movie because he is playing a like sort of naive, soft-spoken character, mm-hmm. which I think is, you're right, not his normal deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like him like that. But, of course, I like pretty much everything about this movie. Um Kate Blanchett, who is just maybe like the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my life, is uh, Jane Winslet Richardson. She was actually pregnant for mm-hmm. this movie in yep. part. So yeah. she's sometimes wearing a prosthetic and I think sometimes not. Mm-hmm. Um, which as a side note, I it took me so long to realize that she was that Jane Winslet Richardson was played by the same person who played Galadriel. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it they just were so different. And then I it suddenly became when it became clear to me, it was like like a crystallizing moment in my brain. Yeah. My girl, my fave, Angelica Houston comes back as Eleanor Zisu. Um one of my favorite characters, my favorite Angelica Houston role. Wow. Um I love how she's the brains. I love how she's um, so deadpan. I love how when we're talking about color, she even has stripes of blue in her hair. Mm-hmm. Um, Willem Dafoe is Klaus. Mm-hmm. So it took me, when I heard Willem Dafoe talk for the first time, not with a German accent, it was like very disorienting to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because his name's Willem. Yep. Sure. <laughs> J- Jeff Goldblum shows up as uh, uh, Alistair Hennessy. Boy, what? does he. <laughs> Isn't he so great? Boy, does he ever show up. (laughs) There's a really great scene, too, at the very end where he and Steve are talking and their heads, they're both a little hunched because otherwise their heads would be hitting the top of the cabin. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael Gambon is in this movie. Mm -hmm. He plays, uh, I have no idea how to say it, Oseri Draculis, Mm -hmm. um, who's sort of the manager the bookkeeper bookkeeper sort of, yeah bud court plays a bill ubel or the bond company stooge just yep. a delight sure. <laughs> just a yeah. nerd mm-hmm. um and then we have the sort of um i mean i mentioned Kla- uh, klaus already but after that we have sort of the crew right and these people are um, some people, some of these people do show up in his other movies in small roles too. So we have Noah Taylor as uh, Vladimir Wolodowski. Uh Sue George as Palo dos, dos Santos. We're going to talk a lot about him because he's an important thing that's sort of like the greater universe here. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin Cohen as Anne-Marie Sackowitz. Um, Weris Alualia as Vikram. Okay. Uh, Niels Kuzumi as Bobby Ogata. Um, and then we have Pawal Wadozak as Renzo Petro. And he's interesting because uh, do you want to tell them what he was doing both in the move in the movie and also in the movie? This is the guy who is the sound guy. Yeah. So like especially in some of the scenes where Sue George is playing guitar and singing um, and you can see uh, Renzo there. He's actually recording. That's like actually what you're hearing is. Yeah. Is, which I think is fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, you have Matthew Gray Gruber, Gubler as intern number one, who mm-hmm. did that um, documentary mm-hmm. I sent you. Yep. Has gone on to do other things. Mm-hmm. And then this is, I believe, the last time we see Seymour Castle. Yeah, which I, I believe I said Castle in the Rushmore episode, but I think it's actually Cassell. And he is the... Uh, what what was it? The inciting incident. Yes, Esteban was eaten. Esteban was eaten. <laughs> yep, he was bitten. <laughs> no, Esteban was eaten. S- swallowed whole. No, chewed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, a great range of cast members, um, and a lot of the sort of crew members. Part of what I love about this movie is I think you and I have both talked about the fact that like we like being able to see things and feel really smart. Sure. Yeah. And this movie does that, I think, the most out of any of the Wes Anderson movies so far. Wow. There's so much stuff happening in the background constantly. 
mm-hmm. um, where there were th- – I can't think of it what it was right now, but there was, so- there was something I noticed for the first time this time watching it mm-hmm. um, because they constantly are just having everybody in the background working as if they're on a ship. Right. Or on a film set because they're also making movies. Exactly. I mean, it's not a set because it's supposed to be they're making documentaries, but, mm-hmm. you know, they, they might be working in a ship capacity or in a filmmaking capacity. Well, as Zisu says to Eleanor at one point, that's the point. We don't know what's going to happen and then we film it. Right. So real quick, because we are going to move on from the cast list. Is yes. this the first movie without Kumar in it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. Right. And just so, he, I don't think hmm. he comes back, does he? Does something he that back? something that we will track because I I don't remember right. Kumar now. watch, Kumar watch. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's not in this. Is there somebody else that sort of a? I mean, the yeah, the fact that the other Wilson brothers aren't in this at all except for right. Owen. So yeah, and the, and uh, and by the, by the way, just because this reminds me, this is not cast. This is behind the scenes. This is the first movie which is not written by Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. This movie is written by Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach. Yes. First collaboration between those two. Yes. Um, who Wes Anderson, one of the only sort of major film credits that Wes Anderson has that isn't his own movie. As we've discussed, he has a handful, mm-hmm. is a Noah Baumbach movie. Yeah, producing The Squid and the Whale. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of other sort of thematic things that I wanted to talk about. Um, Or not thematic, but sort of, I'll just say them. So the first is (laughs) there's the animatronic slash the stop motion in this movie. Yes. Which is, I'm sure, part of why it was so expensive. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, I I can't fault this movie for being mysterious about why it has such a high budget. Oh yeah, it's all on the screen, and and you can and you can tell why, and it is for a variety of reasons. Yes, and the stop motion animation is just one of them. Yes, yeah. There's like the reasons that this movie is so expensive. Let's just list them off. Stop. Huge, stop motion animation, huge cast, actually filming on the water. Yes, real actually cost, having a boat. Cost of a real boat. And the cross section of the boat is building real. an entire cross and section. And it's gigantic. It's enormous. Yeah, and I also, they... I mean, explosions. Like, there's a lot. Of, there are. Well, a we know of he explosions loves dynamite. And yeah, and and gunfire in the movie, and also subset of the point about stop motion animation, the jaguar shark is like the largest stop motion animated puppet like ever built. Yes, it's huge. Uh, up, to, up to this point when it was made and maybe even still today. I'm not mm-hmm. sure about that fact. I mean, I think the only other thing I can say is I, I'd have to imagine the Bowie shit was expensive. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's another great point. Yeah. So part of the reason I love this movie so much is the um, creatures because I love creatures. Yeah. And a lot, all of the stop motion animatronic creatures are um, made up. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're seeing a creature with, I guess, with the exception of the dolphin, the research dolphins and the research turtles, though, I suppose by the very fact that they would be research dolphins or research turtles that are somehow domesticated, that's made up. Right. But it's sort of like it almost feels like um, 
a little bit like Avatar The Last Airbender, where it's like a crayon pony fish. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like this rainbow seahorse. Right. Um, the fluorescent snapper that are bright pink. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, a little lizard crawls onto Bill, Bill Murray's hand when he's at the, the chateau mm-hmm. with Eleanor, and he flicks it off. Like, yeah. Um, those moments as just every time are just delight me. They are just so delightful and bright. And, um, I think also help me believe why all of these people are so willing to like, just like throw themselves into the ocean. Cause like, this is the shit they get to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, in, in 2020, I can say, uh, despite the fact that this movie never really stuck in my memory, what I can say about it in its favor, as far as like its legacy in my narrow-minded uh, perspective as an audience member, is this is this movie has the debut of Wes Anderson using stop motion animation, which he yes. would later use for entire feature films, two of mm-hmm. them so far. Um, the other thing I want to point out is that the stop motion animation looks so good because as we see in the credits, animations are by Henry Selleck, mm-hmm. who is the director of Tim Burton's yes. Nightmare Before Christmas. Because uh, Tim Burton did not direct that. No, he didn't. Uh, Henry Selleck is also the director of Coraline. Yes. And James and the Giant Peach mm-hmm. and uh, other uh, films. Monkey Bone. <laughs> um, so now I want to talk about the music because I feel like there's four distinct music things happening. Interesting. Here. Yeah. So the first is I'll start with what we know, which is Mark Mothersbaugh. Uh-huh. So Mark Mothersbaugh does all of the scoring that's um, the music that you'd imagine them like doing the scoring and like the booth for. Yes. Um, so you get things, um, songs that like just are in my brain. Um, like, let me tell you about my boat, which is the song that's playing um, when they're doing the uh, cross section. Yeah. Um, we get like Ping Island slash Lightning Strike Rescue Op. Mm-hmm. Um um all of those songs are the best mark mothersbaugh that i feel like we we've gotten so far anyway interesting not being able to think of what happens in the future right now and where yeah. mothersbaugh comes into play i will say i think the funniest moment in this movie and 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 if you consider this movie first and foremost a comedy Mm-hmm. then it would stand to reason that the funniest moment is perhaps the most successful moment in the movie or the highlight of the movie is is the moment before they start the dive when <laughs> when when you know yes. Kate Blanchett has his, has her tape recorder microphone up to Bill Murray and Bill Mur- and it and I by the way I'm I haven't mentioned this on the podcast yet but I've been watching the trailers for these movies the on trailer YouTube. for this one is terrible I didn't. Okay, I didn't think so. That's interesting. Um, the first moment in the trailer is yes. the moment from the movie I'm talking about, where Bill Murray says, 
you know, they say Cousteau and his cronies invented putting walkie talkies in the helmets so they could talk to each other. But check this out. We put this special rabbit ear on the helmet so we yeah. can pipe music in. Then yeah. he pulls up the antenna, flicks a switch, and then do 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 and he does the little dance to it. He does that little wiggly dance and Kate Blanchett has to keep a straight face and you can tell it's really hard for her. That's the funniest <laughs> best not best, it's the funniest. Yes. Uh, moment in the movie. That's like definitely like the purest, like you don't need context, you don't need to think too much about it moment. And it's for sure. the best combination of like it's made so funny because of the song. Yes. And it's also made so funny because of Bill Murray and his little dance. Mm -hmm. And also the shot composition and all the activity that's going on behind and around them. Yes, because everyone's getting ready for the dive still. Right. And also the the design, you know, the design of their costumes and the design of the big yellow helmet and that just how far the antenna comes up (laughs) out of it. (laughs) Like the whole it's it's a masterpiece of a combination of things. Yeah, I I love that scene. Uh, so a small note about the trailer, and maybe I'm thinking of the wrong trailer, but I can't imagine that I am. I watched almost all the supplement supplementary materials on the DVD before, um, because I even though I've seen them, and even though uh, I didn't like watch the commentary or whatever, I was like, oh, I'll just like play these like really quick because they're not that long. Um, yeah. So there's like a stars documentary on there that mm-hmm. I think I've also seen on YouTube. The trailer that I watched, the reason I didn't like it is because I was like, this is not representative of how whimsical this movie is. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like the trailer, if I had seen that trailer, I would have been like, I don't really care to see this movie. It felt really flat to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I thought the trailer uh, had some, the trailer is like a, like a pretty good comedy trailer. Mm-hmm. Which is obviously selling only one aspect of the movie, which is probably the easiest aspect to sell. Yeah. And I'm not sure what I would... Like, it wasn't like I saw that trailer and I was like, well, I would have done it this way necessarily. Which sometimes, even as a layperson, you can have those feelings. But anyway. um, So the second layer of music here is David Bowie, the original. Yes. So there's a bunch of David Bowie songs on the soundtrack, Life on Mars, um, Queen Bitch is on there. Um, and Life on Mars specifically is, I think, my favorite shot in the movie. Yeah. Which is when Bill Murray has just found out that Ned, Ned Plimpton is there. Yeah. And he says, I'm sorry, could you stay here for a second? He walks fairly quickly across his boat. Mm-hmm. Life on Mars has started playing already very quietly. Yeah. When he's still talking to Ned. Right. To the point that you wouldn't notice it if you weren't listening for it. Right. As he moves along the deck, the song starts to overcome the ambient noise. He gets to the bow of the ship, lights a cigarette or a joint maybe, takes a drag, and as he pulls it away, it we get slow motion. We get the slow motion that Wes Anderson uses. Um, I took a screenshot of this. I that shot with that music specifically is 
um, I think I think I listed that as my favorite shot in the film. Um, it's definitely one of them. Let me put it that way. It's um, a, it, yeah, it's a, a triumphant moment for the needle drop, and and I feel like in in my mind I have a similar response to yours, where I basically agree with you. I I just want to emphasize that I put a lot of weight on the power of the song mm-hmm. to make that a memorable moment. Yeah, I guess I really like, I also like the way that it's angled. I guess I mm-hmm. particularly like it too, knowing the absence of what we just moved through, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, which absence is what I want to, something I want to talk about a lot in this movie. Mm-hmm. Cause I think a big theme in this is absence. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then the next layer of music that we have is Sue George. Right. So Sue George is a musician. Yep. Um, he is an active musician. He had an album come out this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and he covers a bunch of David Bowie songs in Portuguese, which he then released um, about a year, 11 months after the movie came out um, on the Life Aquatic Studio Sessions featuring Sue George. Yeah. And these songs that he covered, he also translated to Portuguese. So the translations, um, I don't speak Portuguese, but Wikipedia tells me that the translations are not exact um, Mm -hmm. in terms of the lyrics, but he otherwise maintains the melodies and the sort of styles of the song. And occasionally he will sort of insert the English word. So like in Changes... It's all in Portuguese, and then he'll sing "Ch Ch Changes," right? Um, and then also on that album is the Team Zasu song. <laughs> yes. Um, and I love this. This is the sort of thing I love in um, art. I mm-hmm. love when there's like an expanded universe to something. Yeah. So he's this guy who's this musician who's Brazilian. He ends up as an actor on this movie somehow. I actually don't know how he met Wes Anderson or how that happened. Um, And he just gets to sort of sit like a lot of, so I found a video that was only posted on YouTube two years ago that I hadn't seen before. Actually, I think Kenny found it. That's a bunch of raw footage of him performing these songs on the boat in different locations on the boat and stuff, Mm -hmm. which we'll link in the show notes. Um, and in some of them too, like he'll finish. And I mean, it sounds perfect to me. One of them he finished and he was like, "Ah," and like sort of like did a so-so with his hand. Yeah. Bowie heard these covers and said, had Sue George not recorded my songs in Portuguese, I would have never have heard this new level of beauty, which he has imbued them with. Um, so he loved them too, I guess is my point. (laughs) And then the final layer of music that let, I just... Let me just say, let oh, me just ahead. cut in real quick to say... Please, please. I, I think my opinion is that it is no, it is not an exaggeration to say that I think that Sue George's covers of those David Bowie songs are this movie's greatest contribution to the culture. Yeah, for sure. I, I, th- I think it's... it's if. If everything else about the movie were a failure, uh-huh. it's worth $50 million 
And by the way, they went they went eight million dollars over budget. I heard Wes Anderson say in one interview. Oh Jesus! It's it's worth it just to get you know exposure to to that yeah. music. It's it's so beautiful, and he is just so exact. It's yeah, true artistry. So then the other thing is that two of I think the best needle drops or three maybe, are not any of those. Right. So I think that this this music really has a lot of music stuff going on, which is to say, so the the song, is the song, is it Search and Destroy, the song that, um, the song that plays when the pirates, when Bill Murray is like fighting off the pirates? Yeah, I don't actually know. I, I probably I, won't know most of the songs by name. <laughs> so... That song, that needle drop is like perfect for that sequence. Mm -hmm. The use of The Way I Feel Inside by the Zombies, when you get the sound totally cutting off when Ned dies, then you just get the ocean noises as Bill Murray's carrying his body up onto the shore. And then just, should I try to hide the way I feel inside? And then that song which is fairly short and minimal, then playing over the funeral too is an incredible use of that song. We played this song earlier and Elliot was like, what What song that? And we told him and he said, that song is awesome. Play it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then there's um, not on the soundtrack, weirdly. So I was like, because I was like, what song is this? And then I realized it wasn't actually on the soundtrack. When they see the jaguar shark, um, there's a Sigur Ross song that plays. Right. And since we're doing a count, those goddamn drums show up again. <laughs> yes. Do you remember where the drums are? This is, You're referring to the track Piranhas are a very tricky species. Yes. And I have that a... That we first heard in Rushmore. I have a slight note, but yes. Okay. Uh, uh, I know, I, I don't exactly remember where the drums are, but I am recalling that there is another sort of chase scene in this movie. So it's not that these are functioning more like in Rushmore, actually. Okay. Um, so in Rushmore, when that shows up, it's the, uh, track shot of the aquarium opening. Right. And this is happening in Hennessy's research lab. When they're going through and stealing and Anne Marie's trying to get right. Bill Murray to not go through um the un un what she oh she says it so many times. The waters that aren't policed by the international police that aren't under right. IMU jurisdiction. And then it um it follows the stairs up to them to the top of the research lab. Yeah. I will say I'm not sure that these drums are exactly the same. In mm -hmm. Royal Tenenbaums, they did sound exactly the same. Here, I there are some sort of like key like hits that you can like of symbols and stuff. Mm -hmm. And again, I just want to say I don't think it matters because it's the same thing being used the same way. Yeah. <laughs> Even if it's not the exact same track. Right. Um, just because you mentioned Hennessy's research lab yeah. and the, the, the robbery that they do. I just want to shout out the um, Bill Murray's mo two moments with with the coffee maker. Yeah. <laughs> First, when he finds it and he says, 
will this do espresso? I think yeah. he says. Yeah. And then, uh, or is it cappuccino? He says, he says, will this do cappuccino? And then later he hands it off to an intern and he says, plug this in and make me a latte. Yeah. And, and that to me, that was the moment where that was the height of like, okay, this is Bill Murray at his most like Bill Murray, mm-hmm. you know, smarmy, sarcastic, above it all comedy delivery and and that's the epitome of that and that's that like at its best in the movie yeah and and i want to you know sort of compare this to bill murray and rushmore when i Mm -hmm. when i fawned over him so much and i said that he he's so good in his sad sack mode Mm -hmm. which is in contrast to his smarmy sarcastic mode which is mainly what he is in this movie. Like he, he, you know, Steve Zizou is like a, a depressed, traumatized character, mm-hmm. but he's he's mainly playing the like, like kind of a worse guy, like kind of a Gene Hackman as Royal Tenenbaum, yeah, sort of, you know, you know, bad to the people around him selfish he's he's playing a very mm-hmm. selfish guy and i feel like that requires him to be more snarky than than depressed yeah and i i did want to say too that i think that this movie has a i think that you're right it leans more towards the smarmy but i think that this movie has a, a pretty good mix of the two bill murray's yeah um which is part of the reason i like it because it's not just yelly bill murray going so you fucked us. I mm-hmm. told you how to play it. Right. Um, it's also him saying to Eleanor, um, can I butter you up first? And her saying, no. And him saying, can you? Can your parents pay us money to get my boat out of dock? And she's like, no. And he's like, well, can I butter you up anyway? It took me two and a half hours to get here. Right. <laughs> so yeah, my... My since we're here with music, my favorite needle drop is the zombies one. Uh, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you, what's your favorite needle drop? I think mine is the life on Mars. Yeah, I mean that's up there for me too. Um, as I've already mentioned, it is my favorite shot. Which maybe, maybe I picked that as my favorite shot because I didn't pick it as my favorite needle drop. <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense. No, yeah, it does. I think I want to talk about absence. I think that we can move through the plot by talking about absence. Okay. So something that I really love about this movie is it deals a lot with characters that we never see. Mm-hmm. So, and some characters that go away and come back too. But there's a lot of characters that we never see that I think – or maybe we only see for a moment that indicate this sort of greater world outside of the boat, let's say. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Ned is dealing with the loss of his mother. Um, and that's an absence. Bill Murray also has an absence that comes up a couple of times in some sort of small ways, which is Jacqueline. Mm hmm. So Jacqueline was his ex-wife, hypothetically. It's who his 
uh, sub is named after. And um, do you remember what he says about Jacqueline when they're talking about the boat? I remember the tattoo and I remember the crossed out name and I remember the new <laughs> name is Deep Search. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I only vaguely remember he says something noncommittal about why they split up. So you have the whole let me tell you about my boat, which is this, may, may, which might be my favorite scene in the movie where you've got the enormous set that he's on. Yeah. That he built. And it starts with Bill Murray standing in front of it holding a little boat. And he says, let me tell you about my boat. And then the lighting shifts and he walks you through um, all of the different chambers of the boat, which has some of my favorite jokes in it. Like, um, like when he says, this is our research lab where we do all of our science experiments and stuff. And then he goes, Here's the kitchen, which holds some of the most advanced technology on the whole boat. <laughs> right. And it ends, you see everybody sort of in their element, um, recording things, and <laughs> Pele is in is in the engine room, and he goes, it's not supposed to look like that, but we don't have the money to fix it this year. And he's just, like, in there and, like, hits a pipe with a wrench. Mm-hmm. And then it ends with Bill, with Steve, fishing. And all of a sudden you get Owen, you get Ned's voice and Ned says, what happened to Jacqueline? And Bill goes, oh, she didn't really love me. And so on that, that submarine, it says Jacqueline. And then it just has a line through and it says deep search, which is exactly what's on his tattoo, which is also funny. But then also when we see the letter that Ned received This is something I am certain you did not pick up on. (laughs) Okay. Maybe you did. Um, When he gets the letter, when we read the letter that Steve wrote to Ned, you know, you hear Steve reading the letter and then he says, dictated but not read. Right. And next to that are two sets of initials, SZ in caps and then a slash and JZ. Right. And... Um, I remember learning in like middle school that when you dictate something at the end, you put the initials of the person who dictated it in caps and the person who wrote it in lowercase. Mm -hmm. So when Steve Zissou is writing this letter to Ned with the understanding that he knows that Ned is supposed to be his son, he's not actually typing it. Jacqueline is. Right. And that's my favorite use of dictation. Yes. Because that's such a tiny... This is what I mean when I say there's like all of these tiny things to find in this movie, right? Right. That's two letters, right? But but there's so much there, right? It's a totally different time in his life. It says so much for who he was. He's not even with Eleanor yet. And you could just totally miss it. And it wouldn't change the movie necessarily. But when you find it, uh, God, you feel smart. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Um... And then what about what else about absence? And then you also have Kate Blanchett's editor, right? Right. So who else is Kate Blanchett's editor to who else is Jane Winslet Richardson's editor to Jane Winslet, Winslet Richardson? He's the father of her unborn child. Yes. And we never meet him. Mhm. But we get these monologues from her calling him to give him updates and then she just sort of like will sometimes go like every time she sort of goes off track a little bit 
where, you know, the first time she's like, I miss you. I don't know why I'm here. Anyway, uh, you know, just send me the edits. Okay, bye. After the pirates come, she's like, we were attacked by pirates and just like, is like, you know, still so clearly traumatized from this incident. Um, But also at one point, and it might even be the pirates call, she says, I got your edits on my proofs. And it's like, even though this guy is absent, he somehow got proofs to her on the boat. Mm-hmm. Isn't that so funny to think about? Yeah, if you say so, sure. <laughs> like, how did it, how does it happen? I don't know. I don't know. Facts? Yeah, maybe facts. I think that's also a question here is like the technology that's actually like, I'm not sure when this movie is supposed to take place. Yeah, and I think that that's intentionally ambiguous because it's because it's fun to play in a world where there kind of are no rules. And this movie is having fun and trying to convey something interesting uh, uh, having to do with the uh, balance between what's real and what's artificial yeah. And then I'm trying to think if there was somebody else specifically with absence that I wanted to bring up. Oh, yeah. So, like, you know, there's also the absence of Esteban, of course, right? So this right. is sort of their first mission with this glaring absence for all right. of them. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, Klaus, you know, clearly has this protection. He's so protective and jealous. Um of Ned because of how much he loved Esteban and Steve and loved Steve. And he's clearly trying to fill some void there um, in a way that is often very funny. Yes. So one of, one of my favorite shots also in the movie is when um, Ned is yelling at um, Steve that they should go, that they should go and get the, jaguar shark and he goes now lead and they he puts they he and steve put their hands in did you notice what was happening in the background remind me i might have so so way at the end of the hall klaus is back there and he's just sort of listening in Mm -hmm. and when he when they put their hands in he just puts his hand in front of him and like lifts it up at the same time as them oh okay yeah i don't think i saw that I I got a screenshot of that. It's this beautiful little <laughs> moment where he like so he just so badly wants to be a part of it, but it's so funny to actually see it play out. Yeah. I think that uh when when uh Steve tells Klaus you were always like our we Esteban and I always thought of you as our baby brother. Yeah. And Klaus says, I always thought of you as my two dads. I feel like that explains a lot in like the relationship and the behavior. I think that it's like kind of unfortunate that that is sort of the resolution of that storyline. Like that comes towards the end. Mm -hmm. That's during the Ping Island lightning strike. Right. So uh, I just, my, my reading of it is mostly that like, Klaus is this sort of comic relief character 
mm-hmm. in his jealousy and the way he acts out and and somewhat childishly and uh there it might be interesting in addition to being funny and sort of weird in, instead of being sort of weird and off and like i don't okay that's funny but like what why it would it would be funny and interesting if i understood from the beginning like that that Klaus is more than just one of his crew. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it, 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 there's potential for, a, I think, a more interesting story there if Klaus were a little more centered. Mm. But as mm-hmm. it is, Willem Dafoe is just kind of, kind of one of the, you know, secondary players. Yes, for and, sure. And I feel like it, it's that sort of, that's sort of giving him a short uh, shrift. Is that the word? So, sort, sure. of, sort of shortchanging him. Yeah. Uh, let me talk about the um, parts of this movie that I'm critical of. Okay. So the first is the weird, like, anti-queer stuff in this movie. <laughs> sure. So one of my least favorite lines is followed by one of my favorite lines in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the movie premiere at the beginning. Yes. Um, where I'm not going to say this one. You're, Steve, you're referring to the fact that the F word is in this movie. The F and, slur, I would say, to yes. I, to differentiate it from the word fuck. Right. I, well, I, um, yeah, I, yeah. I was about to. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> well, I just I just um, I just feel like it's more useful to say the F slur since we already have. Okay, an F well, word. I, I was doing a thing where I was about to say, and I don't mean fuck. That's, oh, okay. There we I go. Was, and I cut you off. I if I said the F, to... if I had said the F slur, that would not be a setup for what I was going to say next. <laughs> do you want to do it over, and you can cut? No, this out? no, I don't, no, I don't want. I don't want to cut anything. I'm sick of cutting. So he says, "I don't know how you could lay that slick F slur." Mm-hmm. And. Eleanor responds, which truly one of my favorite lines of the movie, which is, well, I was in love with him at the time. Right. Which I, is one of those ones that I sort of quote fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also particularly love because, again, when we're talking about sort of like, because this movie is also about nostalgia, right? So, you know, it's about absence, but it's also about nostalgia, right? So there's this like nostalgia for this better time when they were more successful. You know, Steve's getting older. Um their movies aren't as um, popular anymore. And Eleanor is not afraid to remind him that she was not only not just been married to him. Right. She's like, I have been in love with other people. And uh, yeah, I'm still going to flirt with that guy. And that guy is Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) Yeah. So could I say, because you're talking about that in the in the context of being critical of the movie the yeah. the first part of the dialogue so i i would say there's i think that there's something broader going on here that i think is a problem okay yeah which is that that line is indicative of okay we're we're supposed to understand that steve is not a very good guy in a, yes. in a lot of ways Mm-hmm. In the same way that we understand when when Royal calls Henry Sherman Coltrane, 
Yeah. And it's like, okay, he's an old racist guy and he's a con artist and a liar and he's exploiting his family and he does a lot of bad things. Yeah. Where where I'm more forgiving to not to the character, but to the film. Yes. In the case of Royal Tenenbaums, mm-hmm. I think that that is perhaps because Royal Tenenbaums is such an ensemble movie. Mm-hmm. And I'm just as invested, if not more invested, in Luke Wilson and Gwyneth Paltrow as I am with what's going on with Royal. Mm-hmm. And Royal, you could paint Royal as like an antagonist of the movie rather than the main character. Yeah. Um, because there's, you know, so much spotlight on other characters. Mm-hmm. In this movie, Bill Murray is in almost every scene. Yeah. There is a large cast, uh-huh. but I would say it's not really an ensemble movie. Mm-hmm. It's mostly his movie. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's think, with Steve Zissou. Right. And I think that the movie expects us to be with him, not just in like a literal sense of like he's the one on screen, yeah. but like an emotional investment in that sense. Mm-hmm. I think we're we, the audience, are supposed to be with him more than we're supposed to be with the obviously problematic you know, selfish character in the Mm -hmm. previous movie. And I think that's a balancing problem. The other problem with this that is being set up is uh, Steve Zissou, when he doesn't like them, accuses them of being queer, which is really fucked up. Oh, you, oh, okay. Oh, you mean the, the report, you mean Kate Blanchett's character, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so the thing that's, I think, I feel like this is, one of those things that's more fucked up but like we were talking about last time it's like hard to make a joke like this without still putting a marginalized population right i think that the this line is more fucked up than the other one for this reason which is that at the end there's a exchange i really enjoy for the most part between this is the one where their heads are almost touching the cabin yes where alistair pulls him aside pulls steve aside and says we weren't very good husbands, were we? Mm-hmm. And it's, I really like that scene because they're, they're nemesis, they're each other's nemesis. Like that's, right. been, that's made clear immediately. Yeah. Um, but also because it's this moment where, you know, the, the sort of end of this movie, the conclusion isn't that people are better. It's that they're able to understand how they're flawed. And so you can see how they're going to be able to move on from that mm-hmm. or how they could move on from that. Right. And so here it's this admission of like, you and I have been fighting this whole time and it meant that we failed our wife Mm -hmm. who was our wife at some point. But then he follows that up with what is supposed to be a joke. And he says, you know, but I have an excuse. I'm part gay. And so the fact that he does use the F slur against him is worse then. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if he's saying I'm bisexual or whatever, if he's Mm -hmm. saying in, in his own words, let's say, you know, Let's say part gay is in and of itself not problematic. Let's say that's just the way he wants to describe himself. Sure. That means that the slur is not just, you know, a shitty thing that Bill Murray is saying that's like terrible to the queer community. It's something that is actually being directed at him as a queer person. (laughs) Right. Whereas with Jane, um, you know, he uses the the D slur for a a queer, a bull D slur. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. meaning and that's you know that's like essentially a butch woman mm-hmm. who is um like a sort of larger stockier butch woman right and that one is again i'm not saying that it's better it's one of those things where you know you can't you can't make this joke without hurting this marginalized population but at least with that one i can see wes anderson's head being like she's so obviously not that right like it's, she's it's misdirected a, she's a femme woman right that is pregnant it right. seems unlikely that she did it through extraordinary means right and so to be calling her not just a slur about being queer, but a specific kind of queer that has a specific look and body type. It's so ridiculous that it, that's the joke, right? Right. Yes. Um, it's not great, but I can see Wes Anderson's head right. working through the joke there. Whereas the other one just seems, you know, now looking at it, it just seems cruel. Let, let me articulate two ways that this movie might be improved you can sort of adjust one dial or you can adjust the other dial. And one dial you can adjust is to make the character just as centrally showcased as he is now, but but less offensive. Mm-hmm. And the other thing you could do is keep him just as offensive as he is, but make it so that he is... He's he's still Bill Murray. He's still top build. He's yeah. still the titular character, but it's actually someone else's movie. And in the way that like Tom Hanks is top build in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, but yeah. actually it's not a Mr. Rogers movie and Mr. Rogers is not the main character. Mr. Right, Rogers is, is the antagonist of the movie. Yeah. And and he is actually sort of like the the lead actor in a in a sort of supporting role on a story mm-hmm. level, not in like a the way that they would actually be classified in in awards terms, because he mm-hmm. he'd be the lead no matter what. But in story terms, yeah, so you know, someone else, say like Ned, would be the the main character. The person we're really following and following their journey and right and and we wouldn't have this sort of uncomfortable relationship where it kind of feels like this movie expects me to if i'm on anyone's side it's steve's but also he's like you know <laughs> flippantly throwing around slurs and stuff yeah um and then the other thing i want to bring up which I think is less of a problem in this movie, but it's that sort of less of a problem mostly because it's not addressed way, sort of like the high school, the public high school in Rushmore way, mm-hmm. which is race. Um, so he does have a diverse crew. Again, none of the crew members that are diverse really have major character development or plot or anything like that. On like, yeah, um, on like a story level. Yeah. Um, and those characters are all clearly respected and um, important members of the crew and stuff like that. The pirates, I love the pirate scene. Let me just say I love the pirate scene. This is one of those things where, like, I know that they filmed this in the Mediterranean. I'm not totally sure where this is happening in the world because the pirates speak Filipino. Yeah. Which would make you think that they're in a place that's not the Mediterranean. (laughs) Right. 
And yet the scenery is clearly that sort of coastal Mediterranean scenery. Right. So, yeah, I think it's one of those things where I don't, with the exception of that line about the turtles, about where he's like, they hate my research turtles, which is like, not the worst, not great, but I could do without it. Um, The pirates are sort of um, really just sort of like a, a caricature of a villain, of a pirate. Right. Let me tell you what the IMDb trivia says about the pirates. Oh, please. Just in case, just in case, I'm not sure this will be useful, but just in case it sheds any light on the subject. Mm-hmm. According to IMDb trivia, the original script called for the pirates to be Indonesians. Mm. But since there wasn't enough of an Indonesian population in Italy where the movie was shot, it was changed to Filipinos. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that there was such a large Filipino population. Enough, I guess. Yeah, enough to get, you know, 20 or so pirates. This, um, this movie was, was shot in Italy. Mm-hmm. And as you say, off the coast of Italy. And uh, just to get, just to put my trilogy framing device onto this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Bottle Rocket and Rushmore he was very much at home in Texas shooting those movies. Literally, yes. Right. And uh, in Raw Tenenbaums, he, he, it, he feels, in my opinion, very much at home in New York City. Emotionally, talk, one might say. I talked about how it was like an insider's version yes. of New York City rather than a tourist's one. Mm-hmm. Wes Anderson, I think, said in an interview about the making of this movie that... He thought it would be fun to shoot in Rome because he was going through an Italian phase at the time. That sounds like him. He's so pretentious. Well, that's the thing <laughs> is that this is, you know, the gloves are off. Uh, no limits. Blank check time. Weirdly high budget. Yeah. Go, you can go wherever you want in the world. This is the beginning of... So, uh, you know, we're going to see this play out as like a theme in movies as soon as next week going forward. He's like a tourist, right? This is this is the beginning of like he has that kind of National Geographic like interest in other places and other cultures and in a sort of touristy way, Mm -hmm. he'll just, you know, He'll go through a phase, you know, an Italian phase, an Indian phase, a Japanese Mm -hmm. phase, you know, Mm -hmm. in the way that a person with a lot of opportunities and a lot of privilege um, can just kind of, you know, visit and, Mm -hmm. and to some extent appropriate these other cultures and other places. And uh, because he likes the way they look. Yeah, right. And, and and yeah, something something about them is speaking to him, and and the other the other point that I was going to make related to that is like when when it, it it's it's an easy thing to do mm-hmm. when your own culture, the the one that you can actually claim as your own, is 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 quite lacking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When other yeah, when other sure. cultures seem so interesting and so exotic, mm-hmm. and 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 so foreign, compared to like 
what's our culture as white Americans? Like, it's just... Like, it's like racism. <laughs> it's just racism and consumerism. Like, that's th- those are the two legs of it that's that's all it has to stand on i think you're i think you're totally right um and this is where like you know this is sort of where like the charm comes from it's like a two-sided coin right so it's like both the charm and the criticism yeah is there anything that you want to talk about because i think the easiest way to sort of move through the rest of this is just to talk about some of my like favorite scenes Okay. Not necessarily go through plot wise, but like to go through some of my favorite scenes. Since you said favorite and you kind of turned it over to me, I'll use that as a transition to say what my favorite performances are in the movie. Oh, yeah. And I want to name uh, two people. Yes. For two different reasons. Mm-hmm. So I sort of have two different favorites by two different criteria. Mm-hmm. And one is the character who I'm with the most in terms of my emotional investment, the most sympathetic character, the one who I'm most interested in is Jane. Yes. And Mm -hmm. that is due in no small part to Kate Blanchett. It's also, it's also thanks to the character as written, but it's, it's a good union of the two. Mm -hmm. However, everyone in this movie with only one exception, and it's not Kate Blanchett. It's the second mm-hmm. person I'm going to name. Everyone in this movie who has any significant, you know, dialogue and things to do, mm-hmm. um, they always at one time or another feel like they're a little out of step with with what's going on, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, in my opinion, that is because I think what is going on is somewhat ill-defined. I I think that the tone of this movie is unbalanced and and hard to track. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I kind of sort of question, you know, I'm I'm taken out of it sort of frequently. Mm -hmm. And there's one person in the cast who as long as they're on screen, I will never question anything I will never be taken out of it, even for a moment. Uh-huh. And that is, of course, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Because he's perfect. He's just Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> and he's so perfectly in sync. And when he's on screen, I feel completely secure. Like, okay, I am in the safest, stablest hands this movie makes sense to me. Yeah, I love him. I love him as, um, I think he's such a good foil to Steve too. You know, they they talk about how they were roommates in college too. So they are like really intimately long-term friends. Mm -hmm. But like the fact that Hennessy has like a completely different aesthetic. um, He at one point just, you know, Zisu when they're on the beach with the um, uh, Viet Cong man of wars, um, he says, you know, we're a bunch of strays, Ned. Wolodowski used to be a bus driver. Like, mm-hmm. so-and-so was a high school English teacher. Right. Um, his people are nearly Aryan. <laughs> right. Um, his boat, when his boat shows up, when they're burying the pirate. Yeah. Um, it's so much bigger than Steve's. Yes, it's comically large, right? It, it uh, St- the Belafonte 
is a repurposed World War II, what do they call it, a sub hunter or something like yeah, that? Yeah, something like that. And all of Hennessy's stuff is obviously like brand new, mm-hmm. top of the line. That's why they steal it from his research. He has a whole research, like, what do they call it? I can't even remember the thing that they call it. Station? Yeah, it's like underwater, whatever it is. It's like partially underwater, partially like this like pole sticking out. Right. They're just all in their like white, crisp. It is funny to think about uniforms though, because, Mm -hmm. you know, at one point Jane says when they're on the beach, she's like, I don't even want to know what you're doing out here in your matching pajamas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then by the same token, you know, he's got all of his people in uniform too. It's just like a little bit more stringent. Like they're a little bit more similar than Steve's people, which are... Yeah. Similar, but not exactly the same. Right. Yes. Hennessy's people are, are more professional and more, uh, what's what's the word uh, for when, uh, yeah, uh, homogenized? Yes, um, they're homogenous. Whereas I, I, I wasn't paying careful enough attention to really be specific about the details of, of this, but... I I I in a vague way picked up on like okay uh, a lot of you know Team Zizu they wear red hats but they're not all the same red hats yeah like, they're not all the same um, Klaus's has a little bobble on the top yeah that's for that's what really okay the two things that really made me notice it are like Klaus's has a bobble and I'm like I don't think the rest of them have bobbles no I think that's sort of a joke about him being German a little bit. That's funny. I didn't think <laughs> like it's of that. almost like his. It's, it's almost like his hat is an actual skiing hat. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, and and then Owen Wilson's hat is the only one with the little stoplight, which yours has. Mm-hmm. And I was like, the rest of them don't have that. So I was like, okay, I guess this is a choice, maybe to give them, you know, their their due as like individual unique characters. But also you could say that maybe it's a deliberate choice to present a kind of like they, you know, they don't have the resources that Hennessy has to make everything perfect. They're they're just throwing together, you know, their their version of it, which is a little more slapdash and a little more haphazard. So the other way that I read it, too, is that like clearly they've both been doing it for a long time, but like. The Zisu crew's been doing it for a long time. So when we see that um, that video of them um, in the Arctic, yeah, where they find that like snow ferret or whatever, yeah, a little mongoose or something, yeah, and and uh, Klaus has like a mohawk, yeah, and you get the sense that like I got the sense that like it wasn't just necessarily that it was slapdash. It was that these people had acquired these things over time, right. Um, as opposed to Hennessy's people who are all so young, they right. probably were like issued a standard thing. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I, I just want to say, because you invoked that Arctic scene. Yeah. I just want to say real quick, just like kind of a relatively minor criticism of the movie. You, you characterized it earlier as being about nostalgia. Uh-huh. I think that that scene is a little bit of a shortcoming in the movie because... Just when I watch it, I go like, okay, it's it's neat that they're like watching their old videos. And uh-huh. that that seems in theory like it should be sort of a poignant thing. 
Yeah. But then is it Klaus or or someone else who says like that's how it used to be? Yeah. With a great deal of nostalgia. And that to me just kind of I don't know, it hits me a little bit funny because it really? just well just because it makes me think like I don't see a huge difference between what's in that video and their lives now. <laughs> uh, oh. And, and so when when they go like that's how it used to be, it's like, okay, I don't I don't think that they are going for a joke here where the joke is that um they're that that nothing has changed in that time and actually yeah. things are the same. And I don't think that they're going for a joke where the joke could potentially be that like, oh, that actually looks horrible. So why would you be nostalgic about it? I think it's supposed to actually make you feel for these people and like how like they how bad they feel because they feel like they're past their prime and, and they wish things are are more like how they used to be. And I just watched that scene and I kind of go like, ah. Uh. I mean, I like guess, the difference is like Esteban died. Yeah, I was going to bring that up as part of it. I think the other part is that, um, though I fully take your notes here, the way that I always read that was that um, like they're having a good time. They're all getting along. Steve's not deeply depressed. Right. I, I guess I read it more as Klaus saying like, like Klaus saying that knowing what's going on behind the scenes um, where like, you know, they had time to like jump into like a thing. They had money. I, they were they were gonna, you know, they are discovering things. Whereas now they're just like bickering all of the time. And he's. And- I, I, I want to bring it back to Bill Murray being so smarmy, though, because he's more sarcastic than he is depressed seeming. Mm. And I think what the what Wes Anderson expects me to think is they watch this movie where Steve does the swan dive in his speedo into what is presumably freezing cold water. Yeah. And I think we're supposed to think like, oh, the Steve of today is not so vibrant. He mm-hmm. he would he would never do that today. And I don't have that reading of it. Because Bill Murray is so above it all in yeah. his sarcasm. Uh-huh. And he does have so many toys. Like, he, do you want to go up in my balloon? You know, he has a helicopter that, like, it makes a noise, but it works until it doesn't. Yeah. You know, but at this point in the movie, you know, we, you know he has his eye. So, so uh, Bill Murray's whole attitude is that like he's he says he has dialogue where he says like I'm on the edge I don't know what comes next mm-hmm. and his friend died and he must be very sad about it but at the same time he's supposed to be motivated by getting revenge he's mm-hmm. supposed to be a man on a mission he's mm-hmm. supposed to have a purpose and mm-hmm. his attitude is so um Bill, you know that Bill Murray movie star kind of attitude mm-hmm. that I, I that he's kind of unpredictable, and I totally believe that he might do that swan dive into some Arctic water uh, today. I guess the difference is, would he be able to rally his whole crew mm-hmm. to come with him? Well, that's the other thing. So, so that reminds me 
that one of the YouTube videos I watched was deleted scenes from Life Aquatic, which I assume yeah. you've seen because of the home video. Yes. And there's a scene where it, all the deleted scenes are very, very brief. That yeah, I saw, they're a that mo- I saw. most of them are actually extensions of right. extant scenes. And there's a, a moment where Klaus, uh, uh, I guess Klaus says, well, I think you've misjudged the guy. Oh, I wanted to bring this up. Yeah. And he leaves. Yeah. And in the movie, that's it for that scene. But in the well, deleted scenes. Well, in the movie, he leaves and then peeks through the little porthole right, again. Of course. Yeah. A funny beat. <laughs> yes. But in the deleted scenes, I think it's right after that we see Klaus telling Steve, you know, the the crew, they're going to mutiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I can understand deleting that scene. However, mm-hmm. I do think something was lost on the story level. And I do think that in the movie, when Steve confronts the crew mm-hmm. and he goes like, you know, if you're not against me, don't cross, you know, don't step forward or whatever <laughs> yeah. he says, yeah. which is a funny comedy scene. Yes. But but it it does not feel to me, I didn't really feel the like, oh, it's been boiling over. I, I guess I can feel because of the pirate attack and everything, I can feel the tension. I uh-huh. but but what was lost is I I think Steve is so selfish and above it all and sarcastic that he's very pretentious and I think he's in his own world. It mm-hmm. doesn't ring true to me that he detects that everyone is on the brink of mutiny. Mm-hmm. And so it seems out of no, kind of out of nowhere to me, not that there would be a mutiny, mm-hmm. but that Steve would be anticipating that there's about to be a mutiny. I guess I always read that as they sort of came to him and said, we're leaving. And yeah, he said, I, this is a mutiny. And they were like, well, and then he was like, we're all going on deck. <laughs> yeah. Which I, is, which is again, I'm reading into it extra there, but I didn't read it as him like sensing it. I had a sense that they were going to go tell him that they wanted off the boat. I think that there's just like a piece missing of this movie, in my opinion. And I think that mm-hmm. that is indicative of, I think that this movie had to come together in the edit and i don't think that it totally crossed the finish line there i think that they, i think that they probably did the best they could with what they got mm-hmm. in what must have been a very difficult movie to film yeah um but i think that the the way that it's edited i uh as i like i like i just said i think that they they did the best with what they had but it, it's it's not um, it, it's like a cake that came out of the oven a little bit too soon. I wanted to bring up that um, scene because there's something else that happens in that scene that I think is really interesting, that deleted scene or extended scene, which is, and I'm assuming you didn't catch this, Klaus calls Steve, steve And that's the name that, he tried to give Ned to call him, right. which Ned is basically rejects outright because it doesn't mean the same thing. Right. And so to hear Klaus kind of try it out. Yeah. That's is, a, I think, the, really sweet and right. really telling. 
Yes, and it is a deleted scene, which was not in the movie. Yes, And that's another yes. thing that I think the movie would have benefited from. Mm-hmm. It, it, it gives, it puts a little more meat on the bones of that, that of Klaus, Klaus arc yeah. that I was talking about. And I guess also, it's like, a, also maybe a little bit of what's adding to my confusion is that I see Bill Murray and Willem Dafoe as being like peers. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And I don't think that the movie does a sufficient job coding Willem Dafoe as someone who would look up to Steve rather than being his peer. Yeah, I guess I read that as part of the like weird and funny thing about it is that like mm. they seem like they're the same age. Right. <laughs> or like maybe even that Klaus is older than Steve. Yeah. Um, I think that that for me that just rather than making it funnier, it just made it a little more muddled. But I, I guess I can too, because he's how... such a scrawny little like mm-hmm. Weasley dude in the movie too. Yeah, I can see how they tried to uh, convey it to me. Uh, yeah, I just did, didn't totally track it. Can I go through some of my favorite parts specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So I love the interview between Jane and Bill. With the whale in the background, and I think it's Wolodarsky's, like with like with that cat. Yeah, that's the in my opinion, that's the second best scene in the movie. And I like it too, because I know that I think it was Wes Anderson said that part of the reason he liked having Kate Blanchett on the set is because her acting challenged Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Um. Which I think really says something about both of them as actors. And so I really love the interactions that they have just by themselves because um, I think they both just really, really shine um, through. Yeah. Um, And both of their strengths and insecurities come out. So like, you know, Kate Blanchett is this, she just goes in with these hard questions um, and then Bill, you know, Steve Zissou points a gun at her. Right. (laughs) <laughs> it's a great scene it's great dialogue and i think that that's really interesting what you said about wes anderson and kate blanchett and bill murray i i think from listening to blank check i've become sort of aware of this metatextual way to look at a scene like that where they, on their podcast they talk so much about careers and personas mm-hmm. and like audience relationships to um, actors um, and uh, I think that there there is a, a sort of really you know the scene is made more interesting because of the meta thing that's going on that these two actors are are are, are so right for playing these two characters mm-hmm. based on the dynamics of the scene like the power yes. dynamics and and their histories and like what their what their goals are mm-hmm. and their conflict between them. Yeah, yes. I really this is like a really really small thing, but I love when Steve is upset outside of the club uh about what the dudes were talking how the dudes were talking about him mm-hmm. and his earring and he 
takes out the earring and throws it and Ned just walks around, retrieves it and hands it back to him and he just accepts it without thinking. Yeah, and he like pockets it. Uh, Yeah. I like that scene because I think it shows the intimacy that they really want to have even if they don't necessarily achieve it. Yeah. Um, By the same token, I also wanted to mention how I think it's interesting that Ned's story about how his mother died evolves. Mm. Um, So first she has died and then in this scene he says that um you know she was very sick she was in a lot of pain she took her own life Mm -hmm. and then he meets jane and right away is like she had cancer and it spread to her liver and stomach her stomach and liver and then she took her own life um and i think he even says that she used sleeping pills specifically i think so yeah so, like, the, I, I think that it's interesting, you know, I was talking about absence earlier. I think it's really interesting how they move us through those revelations. Like, who does Ned trust with this information? When does he trust this information with them? Um, and also, I feel like part of it is if he thinks that they can handle it or not. Yeah. And I think part of the reason he thinks Jane can handle it is because she just straight up will ask him, at one point she says something and he says, do you think, is that weird for me to ask you that? He's like, no, I just had, or she's like, when did you know he was your father? Mm-hmm. Um, I also love, just as just a small note, I love how Zisu, anytime he's doing like some documentary shot that's not in action, he's in a suit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's so funny and he's a very specific documentary voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I really, um, love the underwater scene where they're shooting Mm -hmm. because i love that i feel like when you're shooting an underwater scene in anything you'd want to pretty much have your plan fully fleshed out and it's very funny to me to have them you know clicking a little button on the front of their mask to pipe the sound in to the other people's headpieces Mm mm-hmm and they're sort of figuring things out while they're like underwater and these like beautiful creatures are swimming past them. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, another tiny note. Um, when they do the montage of them getting ready to set out for their voyage, did you see what was on the bulletin board that um, Eleanor's crossing stuff off of? Uh, I'm sure that I did, but I can't remember it now. So I, ca- I couldn't catch everything, but... The, th- the thing that she crosses off says skydive into a volcano. Yes. Like the idea is they're getting these filler shots for later. Right. So they're like shooting dynamite off in the water so that they can have that as like a like a stock footage. Yeah, like an insert. And then it also says, yeah, and it also says bottle shooting, cliff jumping. Uh-huh. Um, I know that you saw this in the in the documentary, but also in that montage, they have the interns doing an exercise where they're sort of jumping and then uh flipping their ankle up and hitting their foot against it um or their hand against it yeah and you see intern number one fall in that shot yeah and he actually fucked up his ankle and had to go to the emergency room yes (laughs) and that was the shot that made it into the movie Mm -hmm. what's your favorite animatronic stop motion i mean Let's let me see what I can remember off the top of my head. There is, of course, the jaguar shark. 
There's a few things that they see leading up to that. The only one I can remember specifically is the research turtle. Uh -huh. um, there's the crayon pony fish at the beginning. That's like the first one that we see, yeah. except for, I guess, maybe the fluorescent fish that Snapper. are in the movie in the movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know that the one there was one that was cut out, which is the one that can turn itself inside out, which is in the yep. trailer, but it's not actually mm -hmm. in the movie. Um, oh, and there's the crabs. Uh, are they mating? Yeah. Um, and then I guess there's like one or at least one or two I'm forgetting. So, um, so and of course the jaguar shark. I, I started by saying that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I mean, the best scene, what I, the best scene in the movie is the submarine seeing the jaguar shark. Yes. Um, and, and I want to talk about how successful that is. Um, I guess, I think the thing that looks the best as stop motion animation is the crabs the the crayon pony fish is my favorite creature because i think it's so beautiful but the crab scene is so funny to yes. me yeah because they include a third little crab mm -hmm. and that's what makes it so funny to me right. because the one crab pulls off the other crab's arm that crab is like oh no and then it scurries away and then this third little crab scurries away after it too right I think the crab thing is my favorite because it works on those multiple levels where yeah. it is not only an interesting visual and a marvelous animation, but it is also a funny joke because it's yes. in the context of are they mating? Um, and most of them are just like, oh, look at that fish. And it's it's not like a specific joke. I, we've talked about the let me tell you about my boat, but I think that that might be my favorite Ugh, I think I have multiple favorite scenes. That is one of my favorite scenes. Um, the pirate scene. Let's talk about the pi the whole pirate sequence. Mm -hmm. I love the pirate sequence. I love that you. St I I I love how it starts with Pele singing, and then you get that layered effect that I was talking about last week. Mm -hmm. Of. There's like some fog and then you think you maybe see something and then the boat appears and then you just get the smack of the ladder mm -hmm. <laughs> and and Pele sort of like looks over really quick and then it cuts. I think it's really interesting how um, everyone sort of gets collected mm -hmm. and how the whole time Steve is trying to blame Ned because he was the person who was supposed to be on watch. Yeah. Um, we also get the, the line, who the hell who is, the who the shit is Kingsley Zisu? That's right. It's who the shit. <laughs> um, and also you get Jane's line, I need to find a baby for this father. Yeah. And he says, I know what you mean. <laughs> yes. And then when you get the needle drop, um, we get some crash zooms in that a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Um, I love, you know, I really love the the Bond Company stooge and the different, his like sort of overall nerdiness and this too when he's just like casually trying to like, not casually, but he's just like sort of trying to just talk to them. Like he's like, we can just talk our way out of this. Mm -hmm. And it's also after this scene, I like, I like how the um, intern gets that knife into his shoulder the machete uh yeah the machete yeah because it allows for the gag later where 
he gets his like other line besides on the rocks mm-hmm. where he's like intern you're still here and he was like yeah i want to help you find that shark and he goes good on you intern and he like slaps him on the shoulder yeah. and he just is like ah yeah winces yeah but we also get one of my favorite jokes in the whole movie because of the way that it um inverts a really common trope mm-hmm. which is that ned's been knocked out and when he's coming conscious zisu says how many fingers am i holding up ned and he goes i don't know that's not my job too many to tell yes that's a funny joke (laughs) i laughed at that it makes me so happy too many and i every time i that's one of the ones that i quote to kenny all the time i'll say too many to say Okay, uh, may I use this as a transition to say... Please. I think that this movie, in my opinion, is most successful on the comedy level. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it's most successful for its jokes. And I say that partially because it's so funny, but also partially because it doesn't really work on me too well on a heartstring-pulling emotional level. Uh I, I want to go back to when I said that the jaguar shark scene is the best scene in the movie. Yes, please. I want to frame the, my reading of this movie as this movie is like a magic trick. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's like a magic trick is because that last scene hits me so hard and is so successful. And I love it very much, mm-hmm. despite the whole movie leading up to it not really f- working on me that well. I, 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 the whole movie, it's like it's distracting me with other stuff. And it's like, look over here. And I, I'm not really with it. And I feel like I'm, okay, I'm being strung along, but like, what is the point of this? I'm not, I, I, I like some of the stuff I'm seeing, but it's, but I'm not totally in sync with it and then the prestige of Mm -hmm. the magic trick is that (laughs) final scene where it's like whoa like why does why does this work so well even though all of the setup like it it stands to reason that if the step if i'm not in sync with the setup and Mm -hmm. i don't feel very deeply for the characters for like what an hour and 45 minutes or something like mm-hmm. it stands to reason that it shouldn't work on me when the movie reaches its like emotional crescendo. And yet it's and yet it's it's constructed so beautifully that it yes. does work on me and I do and I love it and I feel it very deeply despite n- not really feeling that way and not not feeling that level of investment mm-hmm. in everything leading up to that. Yeah, and I love that scene too because um, it allows the characters to be like sort of physically intimately close to one another mm-hmm. in a way that isn't, um, I was going to say isn't canned, but they are sort of in a tin can, aren't they? Mm. But it's not like, um, you know, they, they all decide we're going to do this thing together. We've been through this whole experience right. and here we are. This was the point. Let's finish it. Yes. Um, but then that they all just reach their hands out and touch him. Yeah. yeah and the dialogue and the, and just the, 
look of the shark and the music once again i'll say the music does a lot of the work of making it feel emotionally powerful um so can we you think he remembers me yeah that's a great line that's a that's a perfect line for that moment um do you want to talk about the dvd cover and what you pointed out before this oh yeah so um, I was going to show you as if you didn't have to see. They can't see me. Um, so the DVD cover for, and I think what must have been on the movie poster, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, yes, it's also on the movie poster. Is the sub with the sort of main actors um, on it, including uh, Ned, including Owen Wilson. Right. And this always bothered me. Because, I mean, the the cover is, like, very constructed. Let me put it that way. Like, it's clear that this isn't an actual photograph. It's clear that this is largely, like, photoshopped together mm-hmm. anyway. Um, but it drove me – this is one of these things that drove me nuts. And so I'm very lucky that this uh, – in this case, because the DVD that I have, um, when you pull out that piece of paper – from the cut from the plastic sleeve yeah. on the case, you can turn it over and there is an illustration that says the life aquatic. It's got the Belafonte in the back with the uh, with a cliff and it's got the hot air balloon. It's got a drawing of Bill Murray up front um, with a harpoon gun um, and his red hat and his wetsuit. And then if you turn it over, you can see sort of the rest of the island um, with a bunch of the other um, uh like Steve Zissou crew, you can see in their wetsuits. You can also see, I just realized for the first time, the Operation Hennessy. Mm-hmm. Um, let me make sure that you can see this. The Operation Hennessy boat sunk. Yes, that's good. <laughs> so I just invoked the DVD cover because I want to talk about Ned's death. And I wanted to yes. use that as a transition because you were irked by Ned's presence in the submarine imagery. When yeah. he in in that by that point in the movie he's already dead and he's not in that scene, yes. so um, you already know this because Dana shared it before we started recording. Um, Dana shared with me after we watched this movie that she'd seen this movie before and she had forgotten that Owen Wilson's character dies, and yeah. and I think that that is that has more to do with the movie than it has to do with Dana. That's that's my opinion. So, yeah. so why, real quick, why does Ned die? So, and, go ahead. So, I don't, I don't mean what kills him. I mean, yes. on a story level, why, why kill the character? There's a couple of things. I have three answers. How many do you have? So, so the first is there's some foreshadowing of Ned's death. Okay. Which is that right after the film premiere. There's that dude who's not a paparazzi necessarily, but he's like in the crowd. Yes. He says, and who he are you going to kill in part two? And they Who fight. are you going to kill in part two? There's the idea that Bill Murray is reckless and also has not been keeping up with his shit. So we already know that this plane, that this helicopter, he's like, Klaus is supposed to service it every six months. He just sort of has trusted that. And he's gotten away with a lot of shit in this movie so far. Yeah. There's also this small scene, which is like one of those things, like we were talking about how 
in a different way with the Royal Tenenbaums. Like there's so many different things happening that you could sort of miss it. Yes. And there's a small scene between Jane and Eleanor where she's making her, uh, Jane, Eleanor is making her a grilled cheese sandwich. And Eleanor says, I'm going to tell you something that cannot be repeated elsewhere. Don't ask me how I know this. I'm a scientist. But it's curious to me about Ned's existence. I'm the only person I think that knows this, including Ned, but including, or Steve. including Steve, but Zisu shoots blanks. Basically indicating that the reason they never had children was not because of any choice that they necessarily made. Because mm-hmm. uh, they've also, there's that scene where they're talking about that. It's because he was incapable of it. Yes. As she says, I think because he spent about half his life underwater. Yes. Which then throws into question yes. this entire, the entire premise, the other, the, the entire second premise of the movie. Yeah. So the first, the sort of plot premise is the finding the shark. The second premise is, you know, Steve Zissou is suddenly confronted with a child that he knew about and ignored. Two inciting incidents, kind of like the way I framed Royal Tenenbaums yes. last week. Yeah. And so it felt to me, why did Ned have to die from like a, like if I'm Wes Anderson. That's what I'm wondering. Ned dies. Ned dies because Zisu is a failure. But also because he, so we, his whole point is called into question and then here he is still sort of running with this kid, but he's not taking into account the sort of like larger responsibility that he has both to his crew and also to the people that he cares for in his life. And so this is Zisu's sort of like last thing that he has to pay for. Okay. That sounds to me like the plot and thematic reason why Wes Anderson would kill Ned is to teach Steve a lesson. Mm -hmm. Now I have a few theories that I want to put out. And the first, the first is the least interesting. And I think the most likely to be the explanation. Okay. And that is according to trivia I read on IMDb that Mm -hmm. Jacques Cousteau, who uh, Jacques Cousteau had a son who died in the same way. Oh, Really? The, uh, the uh, Well, not exactly the same way, but close. Um, in a helicopter crash? Well, I'll tell you how close. Uh, the yeah. movie is dedicated to Jacques Cousteau, whose son, Philippe Cousteau Sr., died in a seaplane crash. In mm. the movie, Ned, who is supposedly Steve's son, dies in a sea, heli- after a sea helicopter crash. Yeah. Um, I think I think... That's I think the Cousteau influence is probably the actual reason why reason Ned why, dies. Yeah. That's pretty boring. Um, uh-huh. The second reason that I just thought of when we were describing the sub scene uh-huh. is uh, you were talking about how everyone is crowded in together and how many of them there are. And we see a sign in the submarine that says the maximum occupancy of the submarine. Really? Did, 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 am I telling, am I, are you learning this from me or? I'm sure that I've noticed this, but I don't, I don't remember it. Okay. I, I didn't, I didn't notice it in this past viewing or have it committed to memory as I do many things. I don't remember exactly what the number is, but I think it is something like the maximum occupancy of this vessel is six. 
or or something <laughs> like that. It's a it's a yeah. it's a number low enough that it's very clear that they have gone over it. And so yeah. perhaps Ned dies for the same reason why um, Wash dies in Serenity. Oh yeah, what's that? Well, part of it is because I think Alan Tudyk just wanted to to die and be done with it. But uh-huh. Joss Whedon said, I think I heard this in a commentary track or or an interview. Joss Whedon said, "Well, somebody had to die at that point in the action of the movie." to to make the audience think well they might all die oh i see like this yeah. might be the first of many deaths like this might uh-huh. be a suicide it's possible mission, that someone which can die. someone in this movie calls what they're doing an illegal suicide mission yeah and Anne marie says that and so it's possible that somebody had to die just before they all got into the submarine to uh-huh. make you think, oh, okay, actually the stakes are so high that it's not just a guy, Esteban, who we've never met who will have died, but yeah. but it might actually turn out to be a suicide mission. The stakes are so high that characters we know and are invested in will die. Mm-hmm. It can happen, so it might happen again. Yeah. And the last reason is maybe it didn't happen. Right, because of the last scene. Because of the last shot. Uh-huh. Credits roll on, you know, the walking and the tracking shot and the accumulating people. And then they all board the boat and Ned is visible on the boat. He's on the bow. You can recognize him by the pipe he's smoking and the pilot's hat that he's wearing. Yeah. Even though it's a shot of the whole boat, he's very small. Mm-hmm. And um, this, I think, ties in beautifully to the image on the DVD cover, which is obviously the whole point is just Owen Wilson's in this movie. Did you know that? Here he is. Yeah. Even though he's not in that scene. But it's also kind of adds to the mystery of like, okay, well, did he really die? They make, you know, Bill Murray shouts at one point in the movie. It's a documentary. It's all really happening. But Mm -hmm. that's obviously supposed to be a joke that's playing off of the fact that you can see the amount of artifice that they put into mm-hmm. their documentary making. You know, they pretend to come upon the wrecked plane so that they can get the shot for their movie where they say, mm-hmm. hey, look what we found, you know. And and also part of the artificiality that is is the stop motion and, and the animated creatures, which are also blended with like, there are some real creatures as well. Mm-hmm. And so I and and a lot you know people question you know his his legitimacy you know as a filmmaker as a documentarian um, mm-hmm. as a scientist um, and I think it's all supposed to oh oh and also crucially the cross section of the boat and yes. the fact that we're introduced to the cross section when he says let me tell you about my boat and it's just an artificial way to show mm-hmm. what the boat is made out of and its geography, which yeah. would be one thing if that's the only time we saw it, but it's not. There yeah. are others, at least one other point in the movie where, in my opinion, quite jarringly, we can see that they are moving through the cross-section set uh-huh. when they're supposed to be on the real boat. 
And it just calls attention to the sort of theatricality and the artifice of the making of what's happening. And mm -hmm. so it all sort of feels like, well, even this movie that we're watching is sort of, you know, not grounded in a realism sort of place. And so mm -hmm. maybe there's sort of like an inception quality of like a dream within a dream and we're not necessarily going to see everything that literally happens. We're going to see yeah. a curated version of events. And maybe in that version of events, Ned died, but that's actually a fiction. And he, mm. and he didn't die that way. And that's why he is still on the boat at the end. Yeah, I've never heard that thought process before, which is really interesting. I always thought of him on the boat like that as being sort of a, I don't want to say guardian angel because right. that makes it sound shitty, but. No, but it, it's, yes, that was my initial understanding of it too. And that's basically my understanding of it today is that yeah. that's a visual metaphor for mm. how emotionally and speaking, his presence is still felt. Uh, yeah, among, yeah, yeah. among the crew. Um, but I think that the theory that I just laid out is indicative of the room for wild and interesting interpretations that is left open when mm -hmm. you make a movie that doesn't feel totally intentional and well constructed. I, mm -hmm. I think that because uh, I think that it's interesting to talk about this movie. I mean, your way of talking about this movie is interesting because it's personal to you and it's yeah. about why your experience of it and why you love it. And for me, I think my interesting way of talking about this movie is as a failure because, <laughs> because it, it, it's, it, it flopped. It, it had a big budget. Yeah. It didn't make money. It, it's insane to release this on Christmas Day. There's, mm -hmm. there's nothing else like this. There's, there's no significant market for this movie that would, that would justify a budget that high. Wes mm -hmm. Anderson would never get such a large budget again. Mm -hmm. And I think creatively, the, so like, you know, financially it's a failure. I think creatively it's kind of like, okay, there there are too few restrictions on what he was doing. He he went apeshit and <laughs> and and made a movie that is kind of out of control. And uh -huh. and there is a lot of great stuff in it, but like as a story, it it kind of falls short of the mark in in my opinion. And it's it's very jumbled and and muddled. It has so much stuff going on in it mm -hmm. that it's sort of doomed to fail. But also at the same time, what that gives you is a movie where uh, there's there's a level of ambiguity that might not have been totally intentional, mm -hmm. and that's where the room for the the Ned never died theory comes in. Yeah, that's what makes it available. So I just want to get out what, one more thing about the budget of this movie. Yes. Estimated $50 million. Yes. What, what does that mean to you, if anything? 
nothing. I don't understand these numbers. I did just look through some of his other ones, and the only other movie that's gotten that close is um, Fantastic Mr. Fox. His it, it, yes, and Isle of Dogs, which makes sense because it's they're all stop motion animation. That's expensive. Yeah. But other than that, from here on out, it's like fifteen to twenty-five million dollars to make yeah. Grand Budapest and Moonrise Kingdom and Darjeeling Limited. Um, mm-hmm. Prior to this, I'm going to really round here, but just for because it's it's for the sake of discussion, quickly, yeah. Bottle Rocket was made for about five million dollars. Rushmore for about ten million dollars. Royal Tenenbaums for about twenty million dollars. And then mm-hmm. this for about $50 million, which is too <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. much. That's giving him too much power. Yeah. Um, and, and too it's, little. There's no constraint. Right. Exactly. So, so, but let me just put that in context of today, because this yeah. movie is so absurd. There's no way anything like it would ever be allowed to happen today. Yeah. And so, so because today, in the 15 years intervening, what what the landscape is now is that rather than just trying to make blockbusters, Mm -hmm. studios have tentpole movies. And tentpole is like, okay, we're gonna hold up this tent because we know that that Avengers is going to make us a billion dollars. And that movie has a budget of literally hundreds of millions of dollars. And Mm -hmm. they know that they will make it all back and then some. If your movie isn't that, then it has to be made cheaply and Mm. generally made more cheaply than $50 million. $50 (laughs) million is kind of a mid-budget sort of movie. And that that... uh, a scale of movie mm-hmm. is is dwindling. So I see. So yes, tw- much like the American middle class. Exactly, things in the middle. <laughs> right. So, um, so I went back to 2019. My letterbox list of my favorite movies. Looking at some of them, thinking, okay, maybe this is mid budget. Maybe that's mid budget. Trying to yeah. find the the movie today that is made for 50 million dollars. Yeah, And I couldn't find it because it doesn't exist as far as I know. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm sure it does, yes. but I just haven't been aware of it. Or maybe it really doesn't exist. Closest I came was I found one movie that came out last year with yes. a budget of $55 million. Okay. that I would say that's close enough in these scales. $5 million is an insane amount of money to swing on, but yeah. What do you suppose that movie is? Remembering- I know you don't see a lot of movies, but we talk about them a lot. We talked about last year's Oscars or this year's Oscars for last year's movies. Uh Does anything come into your mind that might be made for a budget similar to Life Aquatic, which is not a, you know, CGI, totally, you know, superhero-y, you know, $200 million thing, but it's also not Bottle Rocket. It's got explosions. It's got a big cast. It's off, you know, it's in the ocean, boats, Italy, international. I, I'm so sorry. I can't remember. That's okay. The answer is Joker. Oh, which I haven't actually seen. The movie from okay. last year that I found yes. with a $55 million budget is the movie Joker. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. I, I, I just thought that was interesting and indicative of my whole point, which is that this movie, The Life Aquatic, is a, is a snapshot of yeah. the moment that it was made. Yeah. Because the, 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 the landscape has changed so much in the past 15 years. There's, there's no one else who is going to Wes Anderson and yeah. saying, here's $50 million, make your oceanographer movie that you're so passionate about. Yeah. Um, they, give, they give Wes Anderson $40 million to make his animated movies and at most yeah. $25 million to make like The French Dispatch. So can I tell you something that I also just saw from 2019 that's sort of close to that number? I can but tell you. Not, I've, I can tell do you. Do you know I, what I'm. I found the two. one movie I looked up. <laughs> did you look up Little Women? Yeah, because I was like, how much did Little Women cost? 40 million. That's credi- and it's 40 million, yeah, which seems close ish. It is close. Like it's definitely 10 million under, but that, it's not in the 20s at all. That's definitely mid budget. And, and there yeah. were two runners up that I wasn't going to mention. Joker was 55, Little Women was 40, also 40 was the movie Knives Out. Right. Which yeah, is which a, also had a huge cast. Which, which has a huge cast and just sort of seems like a weird outlier of a movie in it 2019 is, yeah. because it's like th- this is a character that I've never heard of before. This is yeah. not a franchise. It's not even adapting a book. This is just yeah. came out like of somebody's screenplay. mind. Yeah, like, and it's got Daniel Craig, right? Um, so yeah, playing that, a southern man. The, my my point being Ugh. that that forty million dollar movie in twenty nineteen is sort of an anomaly for a number of reasons in yeah, in the current sure. media landscape. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the Ping Island lightning strike because I think that's my like if I have three favorite scenes or sequences I think it's let me tell you about my boat the pirate scene and then the um Jaguar Ping shark. Island lightning strike yeah Jaguar shark oh, yeah but if I'm picking like the ones that really like um amp me up let me put right. it that way gotcha um Part of the reason I like that scene too, I like that whole movement is because it starts with Eleanor coming back and being really smart and that like slow zoom onto her because because our Bond stooge gives us like the smallest amount of information. Right. And she's like, based on the amount of time that's elapsed since he was uh, captured, the sounds of wildlife in the background. But then also it has one of my favorite little... Um, that scene has one of my favorite little um, physical moments, mm-hmm. which is Eleanor says, we believe he's on Little Ping. And Bill Murray comes over and says, I remember it, and points at a different island. Yes. And she just very quietly just points at the first place she had pointed to. Right. Yeah. That's a funny visual <laughs> um, moment. But then I also wanted to bring up the Ping Island lightning strike because it's got some of the best Mark Mothersbaugh music. Yes. It's also some of the funniest, like, times. And I, I'm going to count this as the second caper. So the first caper is, of course, stealing everything from the... Robbing Jeff Goldblum, yes. Yeah. This is the second caper. So mm-hmm. I have the caper count at seven. Yep. But then also it has one of my favorite jokes, which I feel like you appreciate, especially would appreciate this one. Mm-hmm. Especially now knowing your affinity for Jeff Goldblum in this movie. Yeah. Which is, and also we both love Bill Murray, of course. 
when Bill Murray finds him playing poker yes. with the pirates, he says, Steve, did you come to save me? And Bill Murray does that thing where his face just like morphs mm. like a few different expressions. Yes. And he's like, I, I'm going to have to make sounds because it's a podcast. But he's like, oh, mm, uh. and then Jeff Goldblum goes, fold. And puts down his cards, is immediately shot. He's wearing a Dr. Pepper shirt that says, I'm, I'm a, a pepper. pepper. Yes, that's what's so <laughs> funny about the scene, in my opinion. It, 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 what, what, what really makes it sing is how terrible he looks and the T-shirt that he's wearing. <laughs> And the and how the and like the blood looks on that right and right and what a stark contrast that is to you know the the rich guy look that he's had you know when we've seen him before and also how on that in that sequence on the island we realize that every single one of Hennessy's crew is dead yes <laughs> which is so brutal yeah. There's some brutal stuff in this movie. I mean, Steve kills one of the pirates. Yeah, which I also, that scene is so um, funny when they have the body and Klaus is like, I'll come up with some words to say. Mm-hmm. Like, here they are. They've they've killed somebody hypothetically in self-defense because they had come over on their boat or whatever. Right. But then, like, the fact that they're like, we still have, like, it's like the, it's our code that we will honor this person's body. Right. And so they... They're like, he's like saying, he's like reading something and then Hennessy shows up and the whole like interaction there of like, we have to do this, we have to do this, just throw the body over the other side. (laughs) I do have one, there's one, I love everything about this movie, minus the queer stuff. Um, With the exception of one thing, because I think... And I know that this is partially because I am so, like, I've watched this movie so times. I love the dialogue in this movie so much. I love everybody's delivery of all the lines. I think they're all really funny. No one will be able to convince me otherwise, and it doesn't matter, you know? But there's one part that drives me nuts, and it has always driven me nuts. And it's in the scene underwater, in the jaguar shark scene. Mm Mm-hmm. (sighs) she says Jane says in 12 years he'll be 11 and a half referring to her baby Mm -hmm. and that is bullshit because she'd have to be three months pregnant and she's not one she doesn't look three months pregnant at any point but two she at one point says that she's five months pregnant And hypothetically, if they're out on the water for two or three or four weeks, she's probably six months pregnant at this time, which means that in 12, she's about three months away from giving birth. So in 12 years, he'll be 11 and three quarters. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hate it. I hate it because this is why I hate it so much, because the math is so easy to do. You know? Yeah, sure. I... I get, hey, we all have our things, you know. Your thing is not understanding rounding or how people talk about ages. And mine (laughs) is movie budgets. And also because she could, like, I know that Wes Anderson likes being incredibly specific in ways that aren't necessarily meaningful. But she could have just said, like, you know, in 12 years. Yeah. 
How old what, am I? You? Yeah. Your birthday's in January? Mm-hmm. You are 30 and three quarters? But but it's also accurate to say I'm 30. Yes. In the same, in the same way, it, it's accurate to say that a child is 11 and a half. They could, I guess if they had just said 11, I would be less critical of it. Yeah, but it wouldn't be much of a line if that, if that were it. Right. But it's specific. And so it bothers me because I remember the first time I heard that, I remember being like, is she only three months pregnant? And being like, no, that's not right. I, I remembered I, one more thing and then I'm, I think I'm really done. Okay. Which is about the tone of this movie, which I've already think made my position clear about that but i want to include a couple of details that i got from the behind the scenes documentary that i mentioned earlier the one called Mm -hmm. this is an adventure yes and um one part is uh bill it's it's very heavily focused on on wes and bill murray and Mm -hmm. and they're working together and Mm -hmm. and wes anderson and and Bill, it's it's not on set. It's just it's a behind the scenes thing. Bill Murray is getting like fitted for something or 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 whatever, and they're hanging out. And Wes Anderson says to Bill Murray, "Maybe it'll feel like kind of like a Bond movie in the end." Uh-huh. And uh, Bill Murray goes like, "Yeah, dunna dunna." I've had that music stuck in my head. Like dunna dunna, and they're and they're being funny, but also I think that that is an indication of of what was going through his mind. Mm-hmm. I think he really thought that that was a possibility, and that is so <laughs> far away from anything in this movie, except for yeah. like if you just take literally like there are gunshots, there are explosions. The other thing that they say is there's a moment where they're on set and but between takes and Bill Murray is saying remember it's an it's an action comedy we're making an action comedy yeah and and he says remember i i made him define that and he's talking about Wes and Wes yeah. is there and Wes starts saying yeah Action and comedy and uh, adventure. I think we said comedy adventure. It's an adventure comedy. It's like romancing the stone. He says. What's romancing the stone? Romancing the stone happens to be the third feature film directed by Robert Zemeckis, who happens to be the director they are covering on Blank Check with Griffin and David at this time. <laughs> uh-huh. And romancing the stone is an adventure comedy, uh, starring. Uh, um, Michael Douglas and mm. Kathleen Turner. Okay. And uh, it is sort of like a swashbuckling adventure in the jungle, uh, clearly influenced by the success of Indiana Jones. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's a comedy and a romantic comedy. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. fish out of water comedy where she's the fish out of water because she's a romance writer and she gets swept up into this sort of rom- real world romance adventure. Yeah. That is so far away from what the life aquatic is. 
<laughs> Be- because it is about because the characters like all of Wes Anderson's characters are inherently traumatized and depressed <laughs> and so the extent that there is comedy it's because yeah. they are sarcastic and they're deadpan and they're mm-hmm. and they are flippant through their depression like d- in spite mm-hmm. of their depression and the comedy is in the juxtaposition between like making light of things and how serious things are. Um, And and that ain't happening Uh in Romancing the Stone or a James Bond movie or Indiana Jones or anything that you would call an adventure movie. It it just has some of the tropes of action and adventure because there's like gunfire and explosions and like pirates. But yeah, it's and missions. But it's still a dark comedy and sort of a character-driven drama Mm -hmm. in the way that Wes Anderson movies are. And, And I, I just, I just, I watched the thing and I don't think that he was joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I just don't get it. Maybe he's just really deadpan sarcastic and I didn't Uh understand that he was making a joke. But, but my bias is that, is that I think this movie as a, is a failure in the ways that I already articulated. Therefore, mm-hmm. I'm sort of on the lookout for evidence that Wes Anderson at the time was in fact, you know, not sure of what he was doing. You know, yeah. thought he was making something and and then it had to be something else. I think too, and again, I'm not saying this to, I think that all of your criticisms are valid and I'm absolutely looking at this with blue colored blue tinted glasses rose tinted i was making a joke about the color scheme of the movie yeah which apparently was a bad joke no it's great um (laughs) um but i think part of the reason i love this movie so much and the reason that i have always loved this i can say this part of the reason i've always loved this movie out of all of the other wes anderson movies is because it feels so unlike the other ones Mm -hmm. so it's got all the things i like from wes anderson and then it's got all this other stuff that isn't in any other Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Um, but so it makes sense to me that the reason I like this movie is probably the reason that nobody else and clearly other people like this movie because yeah. I wouldn't be able to buy a, an embroidered patch of the Zisu logo from Etsy mm-hmm. if I was the only person that liked this movie. Right. But um, I understand why I can see why I'm the person that likes this movie and why most people don't. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, 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 I just, yeah, I think that those things make a bit of a mess and they don't totally play well together. But yeah, I understand what you're saying. You're, you're coming at it from the perspective of like, well, since you love it and it does work for you, it's like this movie has everything. Yeah. And so, cle- <laughs> yeah, so exactly. th- that's a clear reason why it would outshine the others. Yeah. And so I, I've always known that that is... Um, true and also why i think the movie and we'll be talking about this soon i think my second favorite movie is maybe fantastic mr fox which also feels the most different um so like i even though that one's clearly a lot more popular um especially because you can like children can watch it and it's based off of a rolled doll book that the fact that it's based off a rolled doll book makes it the most different and so I'm I'm sort of liking his outliers, I guess is my point. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I don't want to show my hand uh, prematurely, but I, I can't help but say that, yes, I think when we get to that conversation, we're going to have a lot to agree on. So I have a couple more. I have a couple more notes, just like really small things to to finish us up. Yep. I I never wrote down anything for favorite performance. It's hard for me to pick. Um, sometimes I think it's Ned. Sometimes I think it's um, Jane. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think it's Eleanor. Um, all of those characters really, I really have stuff soft spots for. Um, I of course love Steve, but he's not. He's many times not the reason that I'm so excited to be watching. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very pleased to announce that our dead dog count remains at one. Dogs survive in this movie. <laughs> Cody lives, mm-hmm. uh, even if he's uh, accidentally abandoned twice. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that covers all the favorites for us. So, uh. Will, I have to ask you something. Mm-hmm. What's next for Team Smug Buds? <laughs> toot toot. <laughs> All aboard. Oh, I will see you next week for the Darjeeling Limited. Can't wait. Bye. Bye. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at Youngest of One, and his website is WilliamHoffacker.com. You can find Liz at Exclamate on Instagram, at Exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website, elizabethdeannamorrislakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com, and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram.